Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. Well, happy Easter weekend. Am I allowed to say happy Easter weekend? Okay. Uh, All right. Please open your Bibles to Isaiah 52, uh, beginning in verse um, 13. And we're going to read all the way through Isaiah 53, 12. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screens to my right or my left. The word of the Lord says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet he was esteemed, that we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. 
Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Amen? Amen. It's a rich passage. There's one pastor who preached 10 hours on this passage. So buckle up. Not by a raise of hands, but I'm sure many of you here, I'm one of them, have been scammed by someone. Some internet scam, some telephone scam. Anybody willing to? Yeah, right? Sometimes uh, we hear promises that there's no intention of them being kept. A scam is that. A scam is a promise that the person who makes it does not intend to keep it. Uh, sometimes people make promises that they literally just, they, they can't keep. They want to keep the promise, but they can't keep it. Anybody know anyone like that? Making promises, can't keep it. A few years back, uh, this service came out called Movie Pass. Anybody remember Movie Pass? Movie Pass made a promise to me. For $10, I could see as many movies as I wanted. And I signed up for it before I could be sure it wasn't a scam. Like, I went on their less than professionally designed website and entered my credit card information, no questions asked. I just thought, this is great. And then the card arrived, and you know what? It worked. I went to movies all month long. Saw a movie every night, bordering on sin. Too many movies. (laughs) My family would go to sleep, go see a movie. $300 worth of movies for $10. But you know what happened? Movie Pass went out of business. If you do the math, you're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I took down Movie Pass. If you had bought stock in Movie Pass, my bad. So, promise was made that, that they just simply uh, couldn't keep. You've certainly made promises that you've not kept. And promises have been made to you that were not kept. Sometimes someone makes a promise you think they are not going to follow through. When they do, it's really exciting. As believers, as Christians, when we read the Old Testament and when we read about what God's plans are for his people, when he makes promises to his people, we can trust that God will do what he says he's going to do. He's going to follow through. And in this passage... In Isaiah 52 and 53, God makes really, really, really big promises. Promises that far exceed any promise you or I have ever made. Promises that are going to cost God way more than anything has ever cost us. Promises that will not be fulfilled or kept until hundreds of years later. Long-term promises. Yet, however, God kept them. On the one hand, when we celebrate Good Friday, there is a sense of somberness. You know what I mean? There's a sense of sadness. Uh, Jesus was crucified and it was brutal. It's like viscerally disturbing. Crucifixion was not a good way to be put to death. And there's there's like a, a, a space for that in a Good Friday service. Um, but I want to to a certain degree, reframe a little bit what we're doing when we reflect on the cross. The cross is God keeping his promise. And we should celebrate that. 
We don't need to celebrate the pain. We don't need to celebrate the gore or the brutality, but we should celebrate that God keeps his promises. Isaiah is a prophet uh, against the backdrop of Israel becoming smaller and weaker as a nation and two other uh, regional powers growing, Assyria and Babylon. And these would be the two powers that God would use then to chastise and to punish, or to discipline is a better word, his people. The Israelites that Isaiah is prophesying to are looking forward to, they're, they're looking down the barrel of judgment. And so Isaiah includes a great deal of discussion about judgment, about people being punished, being disciplined for their wickedness. However, uh, Isaiah also talks about deliverance, God rescuing his people, God doing something about the situation that they are in. And as we read through Isaiah, discussions of deliverance and, and comfort and God acting on behalf of his people grow and grow and grow. And then we get to Isaiah 40 and we begin to read the servant songs where Isaiah talks about the servant of the Lord. And then, then we arrive at, at uh, Isaiah 52 through 53. It's the fourth song of the servant. And in that servant song, we learn a great deal about this figure whom God would send to deliver his people. We have the benefit of knowing today that that servant, the one we just read about in Isaiah, is Jesus. Specifically and manifestly, Jesus. Jesus Christ is the figure that Isaiah is talking about. 700 years before Jesus walked around Galilee and performed miracles and went to a cross and was raised on the third day. The figure we're talking about in this passage is Jesus. The entire New Testament, over and over and over again, when it talks about Jesus' ministry, it quotes Isaiah. Because historical facts, they, they need to be accompanied with a sense of meaning. We need to know what they mean. Um, you may believe that Jesus was put to death and that he was raised on the third day. Many of you might believe that. But if you had no context for what it meant for him to do that, those are just historical facts. Things like Isaiah are saying, here's what it means for Jesus to have died and to have been raised on the third day. It gives meaning behind the facts of history. Jesus was crucified and Isaiah is telling us what it was that Jesus achieved when he was crucified. And it is a rich gospel passage. I like to talk about with people like passages in the Bible which convey the gospel simply. Romans 3 or uh, Ephesians 2. Uh, but as I had prepared and reflected on Isaiah 52 and 53 over these last couple of weeks, I come to realize that perhaps the best, fullest description and expression of the specifics of the gospel is not found in the New Testament, but in the Old. That Isaiah tells us ahead of time what it is that God is going to do. And we know that like, this passage has gospel witness because in the New Testament, we read about people who encounter this passage, learn about Jesus, and realize what it is that he's done. Philip, who is a missionary, he's uh, encountering this Ethiopian who's reading from Isaiah. We read this in Acts 8. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. This might be something you recognize. We just read it. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Which is like an open door for evangelism. 
The Ethiopian's like, can you please tell me about uh, Jesus? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. The Ethiopian is reading about Isaiah. He's reading about the servant in Isaiah. And he's like, who could this possibly be about? And Philip's like, what'd you say? One of the reasons why this passage is so important, why the gospel message is so important, why we can talk about the gospel according to Isaiah is the gospel is answering this universal cosmic problem that every single human being has when it thinks about the way that the world is ordered. Now, here's what I mean. Uh, We believe that God is holy. Do do you believe that? Good. Okay. That was an easy one. We believe that God is good, that he's righteous, that he does nothing wrong, that everything about him is pure and perfect. And because God is all of these things, and he's all these things all the time, he doesn't put up with wickedness. In fact, wickedness should be met with justice. And because God is holy and good and righteous, he is also just. And because he's just, he deals with wickedness. He addresses it. Everyone still with me? Okay. The problem is, we are all wicked. Now, many of you who attend here regularly know that to be true. You've heard us say it over and over again. If you're new here, you might be like, please explain what you mean when I say, when you say that everyone is wicked. The Bible teaches over and over again that human beings are sinful, that they have rebelled against God, and they have, as Isaiah says, gone their own way. I could spend time trying to convince you of this if it's not something you already believe. I don't think I need to. I think you can look into your own heart, consider your own desires, your own appetites, your own actions, your own secrets, And no, there's a sense in which you are guilty also. So you have God, who is holy and righteous, human beings that are wicked and in need of justice. Yet at the same time, God loves guilty people. So now it seems like there's two qualities or attributes of God that are at odds with each other. God's justice and God's love. We can famously see these two attributes of God described when God tells Moses more about himself. In Exodus 34, we can read this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but (laughs) who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Some theologians have called this the riddle of the Old Testament. How will God satisfy the demands of his justice and at the same time have mercy on his people? And in Isaiah, we read about a servant whose ministry, and we know that servant to be Jesus, does both those things. It satisfies. It satisfies the demands of God's justice and it enables mercy for God's people. It is not the case that God is just and God is merciful, that God is just and God is loving. And what happened was these two attributes, these two qualities battled until love just just barely won out over justice. God is always just. God is always loving. God does not change. So we read about this servant. 
I think uh, the first section we read about the scandalous servant. The servant is scandalous. Uh, Read with me beginning in verse 13 again. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has been told them they see, not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before them like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. There's just kind of brief moment where Isaiah gives us sort of this flyover of everything he's going to say in verses 13 through 15. He is going to talk about the ministry of the servant that is going to end in the success of the servant. Eventually, the servant will have such influence that the the mouths of kings will be shut. And he begins by saying that this servant will act wisely. This is a Hebrew euphemism referring to simply the fact that the servant will do what he set out to do. That no power is going to overcome him. That no one will turn him aside. No one's going to outsmart the servant. The servant will do the thing that he has come to do. He will be so successful that the mouths of kings will be shut. We read that he'll sprinkle many nations, which is a reference to the sacrificial system. The priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrificial lamb to convey that the people's sins had been forgiven. But then it takes this interesting turn. Um, It says also that the servant is highly exalted. I want to show you another place where the same language is used in Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. There's certain language that is basically only used about God in the Bible. The idea of God being high and lifted up. This is the only other place in Isaiah that I can think of that this phrase is used. And then it's used in in, uh, chapter 52 and 53 to describe the servant. Just for a moment, uh, I know that sometimes you guys get asked the question, where does the Bible say that Jesus is God. Anyone ever get asked that question? You're like, uh, here's an example (laughs) where where the prophet Isaiah is saying the servant, like Yahweh, is high and lifted up. God is not confused about who the servant is. The servant is not confused about who the servant is. It is clear that the servant is God and man. We're not surprised by that because we know that that's true about Jesus, but that's happening already in Isaiah. 700 years before, Jesus walks around Galilee, performs miracles, dies, and is raised from the dead. Then Isaiah describes the outward appearance of the servant, which is not great. Marred, barely looks human. People look away when they see him. If you ever walk down the street and you see someone that is for one reason or another miserable looking. You look away because you feel kind of ashamed and you don't want them to feel ashamed. Some of you know what I'm talking about. All of you know what I'm talking about. 
That's how he's describing the servant here, that outwardly it does not look good and that he's rejected. Before the servant will complete his mission, he will be rejected. The people he goes to won't receive him. In Isaiah 53, 2, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and look, and no beauty that we should what? Desire him. Isaiah is saying the servant will arrive, and we know the servant is exalted, is high and lifted up, but his outward appearance isn't appealing, and the people who see the servant won't receive the servant because they don't want what he has to offer. He's not the sort of servant that they are looking for. We see this played out in the life of Jesus. Jesus arrives on the scene. We read this about Jesus in John. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and look, his own people did not receive him. Just a reminder, Isaiah is written 700 years before the life of Christ. There's probably a variety of reasons why Jesus' own people didn't receive him, but principally among those reasons is the fact that Jesus was not the sort of Messiah that they wanted. Uh, the Jews at this point had been passed around from foreign power to foreign power for hundreds of years, and now they were under the boot of the Romans, a brutal empire. They were waiting for someone to come and save them. Save them from what? From Caesar. They want a Messiah with a sword and with an army and with the right type of charisma, with political power. Jesus didn't come with any of those sorts of things. He does not destroy Roman power. He's crucified on a Roman cross. The sorts of things that got first century Jews excited were not first and foremost the sorts of things that Jesus was talking about. It did excite some people. But we read over and over again that many people rejected Jesus because he was not the sort of Messiah that they wanted. I don't think most of us today are looking for a Messiah to overthrow Roman oppressors. And I think we look back and we're like, obviously, that's not what they should have been looking for. Romans are long gone by now. Christianity is still around. I do think that in our hearts, many of us desire things from Jesus that he does not principally mean to give us. That there's this like larger, more fundamental issue we have in our lives. But we want Jesus to give us wealth and health and happiness. And sometimes we look on the outside and we see other Christians or other churches or other preachers preach a prosperity gospel, in which it's very easy for us to identify the lie. A pastor says, believe in Jesus and you'll be rich. That is not true. <laughs> you might be rich, but you also might not be. But I do think it's easy for, for these desires to creep into our hearts. I know in my own life when I'm afraid I'm going to lose something that I love, I will very quickly pray for God to protect that thing. <laughs> in such a way that if God weren't to protect it, then maybe he doesn't really love me. You guys know what I'm talking about? If Jesus 
is primarily a person whom we ask for things from. He's not our Lord. He's like a sky fairy that we make requests to. It's similar to the first century Jews wanting Jesus to be a military leader and not a suffering servant. I'm trying to give you an example. I got uh, a daughter who's two years old, got a bunch of kids. She recently got sick. She got a high fever. Anyone ever have a kid with a high fever? And you're like, I don't really know what to do. What number is the danger number? 101, 102, 103, 104? I don't know. So I take her to urgent care when the number is high enough to suitably scare me and scare her mom. (laughs) And uh, I get there, and, you know, the doctors are going to do their thing. They lay out the amoxicillin because they think she has, like, you know, a sinus infection. They lay out the Tylenol, the kid's Tylenol, and they lay out the test to see if she's got either the flu or COVID or whatever, right? And then the last thing they lay out are these little stickers of Disney princesses. My daughter needs some medicine, right? She's sick. And she surveys the offerings, and she's like, I'll have these stickers. That's what I need right now. That will make me feel better. We have to accept the scandal of the cross, the scandal of servant, a Jesus who does not necessarily give us what we want, but gives us what we need. We need to be rescued. We need to be rescued. That's what we need. Jesus offers that rescue from the wrath of God. If we continue to read, we, we learn about the sacrificial servant. Read with me verses 4 through 9 of chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned Every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked. And with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. As I prepared this week and read this passage, it's wild to me that again, this was written so many hundreds of years before the life of Jesus. If I just took these words and read them to strangers and said, who are these words about? They would say, oh, obviously, this is talking about Jesus. And I believe it's talking about Jesus, but his name's not there. It was written hundreds of years before his ministry. And when we get to this section of Isaiah 53, we are arriving not just at the heart of the fourth servant song, but at the heart of the gospel itself. What was actually achieved at the cross? What it is that Jesus did? 
I do interviews with people for baptism all the time. I say, I want to be baptized. I say, awesome, great. Can you explain to me what the good news of Jesus Christ is? Sometimes. Sometimes people can, sometimes people can't. There are a number of uh, misunderstandings about the cross work of Jesus. And usually these misunderstandings are rooted in something that is true about what Jesus does, but not ultimate about what Jesus does. So people will say Jesus is a good moral example. And the point and purpose of his life and the standard and mode of Christianity is to obey and follow Jesus in the way that he lived his life. Is it true that we should follow Jesus? Should we seek to, to live righteous lives honoring to God? Should we love others? Should we love our enemies? Should we live sacrificially? That's all true. But it is not the heart of the gospel message. There's a lot uh, going around about Jesus as the supernatural cosmic victor over demons. I want to pause you there. I believe that's true. <laughs> I believe that demons exist and Jesus as a supernatural power defeated them. I believe he put them to shame and, and paraded them through the heavenly city. But is that the main point of the cross? Jesus is a comfort for our souls. Is it true that Jesus is a comfort? Amen. It's true. Because my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But even that, that is not the main point of the cross. Some of you are like, I'm new here. Please just tell me. <laughs> it's like, I don't have to tell you, actually. Isaiah will tell you. Isaiah will tell you. He says that we have all gone astray. That we have all gone astray. So one of the many ways that the Old Testament talks about human sin. And the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Bible as a whole, takes sin very seriously. Uh, in the modern world, we don't. One way that we don't take sin seriously is we blame it on external circumstances. So we say, I am this way because of my parents, or I am this way because of our culture, or I am this way because of my community or because of my socioeconomic class or because of this illness that I have or whatever. I think circumstances can increase sin. I think there are certain environments in which people more are more likely to commit certain types of sin. I do not believe sin starts anywhere but our own hearts. All the way back at the beginning, that's what we did. God says to Adam and Eve, you can eat any tree you want, not this one though. And he you know, leaves, whatever it means for an omniscient God, an omnipotent God to leave, an omnipresent God to leave. Third try. Adam and Eve, what do they do? The one thing that God told them not to do. Then God comes back and says, Adam, did you do the one thing I told you not to do? And Adam says, listen, the woman that you gave to me. He immediately takes blame and he's like, you hold this, Eve. To begin with, sin is in our own hearts. It, your sin isn't birthed in my heart, and my sin is not birthed in your heart. More than that, though, we just take sin too lightly. Uh, people say, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm a human being. The New Testament, the Old Testament, the entire witness of the Bible does not uh, think of sin as a minor problem. It thinks of it as a mortal problem. Uh, the testimony of the Bible is your sin will kill you. 
eternally. It will put you to death. So sin is this very serious issue that we have. And Isaiah is explaining the sin of humankind. And we see this other places. And then we get to um, a description of the servant of Jesus in, in, in Isaiah 53, 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. We have this comparison of human beings, which are sinners, and Jesus, who is sinless, without sin. And I want you to just see this pattern through Isaiah 53, this extremely powerful pattern. About the servant we read, his soul makes an offering for guilt. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. He bore the sin of many. He makes intercession for the transgressors. He has borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was stricken for the transgressions of God's people. Over and over and over and over again. Here is the pattern. Here is the unique feature of Christianity. Here's why the belief in Jesus and trust in the gospel is different than every other thought system in the world. The pattern of Isaiah 53 in which God deals justice and offers mercy is that the servant trades places with us. That Jesus, who had no sin, had no debt to pay. His record was clean. He lives the life that we were unable to live. He dies a death that we could not have borne. He pays a price that we could never have paid and he gives back to us his own righteousness. The power of the Gospels is not that Jesus heals the sick or that Jesus uh, feeds the hungry. Those are great things. The power of the Gospels is that Jesus trades places with us. Isaiah is telling it. 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah is saying, he's going to come, what he's going to do? He's going to trade places with you. <laughs> Gospel witness in Isaiah. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Saying Jesus was sinless, but became sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus takes on our sin. He gives back to us righteousness. Jesus takes on our death and he gives back to us life. This is so that God could be uh, both just, as Paul says, and the justifier of the one who believes. At the cross, God satisfies the good and right demands of his justice. He doesn't sweep evil under the rug. And he provides a path of mercy to his people who call on his name. Pope Chapel, at the heart of the gospel, are not moral aphorisms, not therapeutic platitudes, but the God-man 
who takes our place, who dies in our place, and who gives us life in exchange. That's what the gospel is. Is that worth hoping in? Lastly, we read about the successful servant. Uh, 53, 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We read that Jesus upon the fulfillment of his mission, sees and is satisfied. He succeeds in the mission that was given to him. He sees his offspring. He sees his prolonged days. You can only do those things if you're alive. So I believe this is a foreshadowing, a prediction of the resurrection of Jesus. But come back on Sunday to hear more about that at 6 a.m., at 9 a.m., or 11 a.m. I want to zero in on, on one aspect of uh, what Isaiah is saying here. It's, it, it, in verse 10, um, oh no, sorry, not verse 10, in verse 7, we read that Jesus was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's described as a lamb and as a sheep, and then it says again, he opened not his mouth. When we consider the final week of Jesus' life, the final days of Jesus' life, we know that he was sent before a variety of different judges. He stood before Caiaphas, the high priest, he stood before Herod, the Idumean, who the Romans put in charge of certain portions of Judea. He stood before Pilate, the local Roman authority. And in none of these trials does Jesus call forth trial wit uh, uh, star witnesses. He doesn't make any attempts to defend himself clearly. He doesn't try and run away or escape. He opens not his mouth. And so we think about these different People. We think about Herod, we think about Pilate, we think about uh, Caiaphas, we think about the Jews, we think about the Romans. Like, who killed Jesus? Was it Pilate? What do you think? Was it Herod? The Jews? The Romans? Was it us? Pope Chapel, the text tells us God killed Jesus. It says in verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord, what? To crush him. Jesus doesn't go to a cross on accident. I think there's a picture of the gospel story that we kind of get in our brains. It's easy to get like Jesus started his ministry. Things were going well, kind of went sideways People ally themselves against him. They conspire against Jesus. The odds are bad. He gets taken to the cross. And then God snatches victory out of the jaws of defeat and raises Jesus from the dead. No, no, no. Uh, from, from before time, the triune God counseled together, knowing that the Son would be sent to take on human flesh and bear the sin of God's people was not an accident, Jesus goes to the cross 
on purpose. That's where he sees success in his ministry. He intends to go there. I read a preacher this week um, that said something that just kind of stuck in my head. Uh, Jesus is the only person that ever chose to die. You're like, well, that can't be right. We have stories of people who give up their lives for the sake of others. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, they actually didn't choose to die. They just chose how or when to die. Jesus didn't have to die, unlike the rest of us. He chose to. And he chose to, to satisfy the just demands of God and, and to rescue us from the consequences of our sin. And he succeeded. Hope Chapel, he succeeded. All of it. Everything you've said that you wish you could take back, everything you've done that you wish you could take back, he paid for all of it. Everything. There are certainly people in this room who have committed grievous, embarrassing sin. And I want you to know, if you call on the name of Jesus, it's paid for. So I don't think Good Friday is meant primarily for us to feel sorry for Jesus. I think we can have a certain sense of somber reflection on the violence done to him. But instead, our posture, I believe, should be joyful thankfulness because it was at the cross that God achieved his victory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you are an all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign God who's never surprised, who never has to go with plan B, who never has to improvise. That you are a God who doesn't change, so we can trust you. We thank you that you are holy and righteous, and Father, at the same time, we thank you that you have provided a way for us to be rescued through the blood of Jesus at the cross. Pray this Friday evening as we reflect on Jesus' cross work, we would be thankful for his sacrifice, we would be joyful in your victory, and as we approach Sunday, we would be hopeful in the resurrection. Probably sings in the great name of your son, Jesus. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.